Welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came home. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jerry Springer. Thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, still doing it actually from uh, our own homes it, remotely. Uh, things are getting better though. More, I fifty percent of the country already has their shots, right? Yep. That's what wow. I just read. Yeah. So, hopefully, fingers crossed, soon we'll be able to go back to the back. folk school coffee yeah. parlor. Yeah. You guys are yeah. both done with both of yours, aren't you? Correct. Yeah. I, am. I, yeah. I get my first one next week. So. Okay, Ooh. that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Oh, good. You, yep. You'll love it. You'll love it. I'm excited. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, we have uh, going to be hearing from uh, Eric Bollander uh, shortly, and he is a uh, Americana slash folk uh, genre singer songwriter from originally from Garrison, Kentucky, which is over in eastern Kentucky. Uh, Megan and I both live in Kentucky. Jerry's wife, Mickey, grew up in uh kentucky and cynthiana so we're, we've all got yes. kentuckians and uh anyway garrison's over kind of between uh, near vanceburg between baseville and ashland and uh lives in lexington has for the last 20 years so we're looking forward to meeting him hearing him and featuring him and jerry's going to do his uh, thought of the week we always look forward to those and just uh to give you a quick caution it's his thought of the week, because he just told me, is not on the topic we're going to open with. We usually open with the tomfoolery part of the show, kind of goofing around, doing something light. But look, we're recording this on April 20th at 7 o'clock in the evening, and at around 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock Mountain Time, Central Time, they announced the results of the Derek Chauvin trial. He is the officer accused and now convicted on all three counts, as you all know, because, you know, this runs. We've got a Facebook Live audience. Megan and Jerry say hello, wave to Facebook Live audience. We love, <laughs> we love having them. But yeah. most people listen to this audio only in the archive. So when this airs, which will be tomorrow or so, next day or two, you'll know that that happened. But he was convicted on all three counts, second-degree murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. And he could be going to prison for quite a long time. And so we thought, my God, we can't not speak to this. And Jerry didn't know this was gonna break. So his thought of the week is on a different topic. So we're gonna kind of take a few minutes now and talk about this. So Jerry, first, what are your quick thoughts? Your, what was your instant reaction when you heard well, the the uh Instant reaction was, I expected it. Um, I mean, based on what the law is and based on the evidence that we know was presented and we saw with our own eyes, the whole country saw it, it wasn't hard for me to conclude that regardless of the politics or the culture at the moment, this they were going to find him guilty. However, What's interesting is I, I sit here as a white guy and so many African-Americans 
you know, perhaps even a, a majority, perhaps a vast majority, they were palpably nervous mm -hmm. because they've seen this so many times before when it is obviously clear that a police officer shot someone, killed a black man, you know, inexcusably. And, you know, all the evidence seems there and they're still found not guilty by juries that will, by Pavlovian response, always uh, believe the police officer first. I mean, that's, that's what the burden is. You, you've got to not just get to reasonable doubt with guilt or innocence, but you also have to get over your uh, built-in, uh, I won't say prejudice, but built-in thinking that if the police officer says something, that's the truth. And the police will always back it up, you know, the blue wall. Um, so it's interesting that my confidence that this would be the, the verdict um, compared with African-American uh, who were really nervous and, you know, some were absolutely convinced that he'd be found not guilty or certainly not guilty of the murder charge right. because the jury won't do that. But uh, thankfully, I say because the evidence seemed clear, thankfully he was uh, convicted. That's the right thing to do. But we must not believe that, ah, we're now a fully just nation because this is one case where literally the cameras were rolling the whole time. The tough question we all have to ask ourselves is what happens, and it happens almost every day, when some black man is gonna be pulled over by a cop in some small town when the cameras aren't rolling and the guy gets either assaulted or shot by the police officer or whatever, uh, that's just gonna, we're not gonna pay attention to it. And a local, maybe in that community, which could be very conservative, maybe in that community, they just find the police officer not guilty just because, hey, he's a white police officer, he's not guilty. That's the hurdle we haven't passed yet. This was the easy case. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I say that as a white person, this seemed to be real easy because I can't even imagine what would be said if he was found not guilty. What, you know, what possibly could be the justification? Uh, so that's why I say this was the easy case, but we've got a long way to go till we start dealing with the, you know, with the more difficult cases where the cameras aren't rolling. So I don't think black men, young black men in America, uh, are much safer today than they were yesterday. Uh, perhaps a little bit because everyone's gonna be more conscious of it now, um, but I still think they're great hurdles we have to overcome. Megan, what do you think? Well, I was listening before we started the show to um, the Floyd family attorney, and I think he put it really well. And he said, you know, we need to take a moment and kind of snapshot this because it is, it's a special moment in history. We're gonna snapshot this moment and appreciate this moment for what it is, but very much to Jerry's point, like this is, this is just the beginning and this certainly doesn't mark the end of anything. It's the beginning of something. And, and like Jerry said, this, this was the easy one. This was all on camera and, you know, being guilty of black and running is still a thing and being guilty of black and driving is still a thing. So um, he made a very strong point of making sure that everyone took a moment, took a beat, 
appreciated this today, but know that this is just the beginning of the work that needs to be done on a, on a bigger scale. Yeah, it's interesting uh, in relating to what both of you guys just talked about 20, exactly 20 years ago, almost to the day, I was working uh, for Alicia Reese. And Jerry, you know the Reese family. Oh, sure. Megan, you know who she is. She's now a Hamilton County Commissioner, but she was Vice Mayor of Cincinnati at the time. And she went on to be a state representative. She's a local pol politician, African-American woman and an activist. And I was working for her in her city council vice mayor office as a staff member when a man named Timothy Thomas was killed in an alley in a neighborhood called Over the Rhine in Cincinnati, very working class and poor neighborhood at that time. Now it's been gentrified and it's quite different. But anyway, at that time, working class, poor neighborhood. 2001, Gene? Was that 2001. Yep. 2001. And, and listen to how similar the situation was. Well, first of all, there were no cameras, right. to your point, Jerry and Megan. There were no cameras. He was uh, chased by a police officer. He was unarmed. He ran down an alley. He turned around. He was directed to raise his hands. He did. And the police officer, a man named uh, Stephen Roach, shot him dead. And when he walked over to him and got on the radio and said, you know, there's been an incident, he had no weapon. And the city um, had a trial. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, around the time that it happened and following, there was over $3 million of damage in the reaction of the community to what went down. Here's what went down. Stephen Roach was acquitted. And the kid wasn't armed. He was no threat. But like you said, Jerry, the difference in 20 years is I swear to God back then, I was, I'm telling you, I was working in this council office. I was, and I'm a white guy too. And I was real tuned in though to what happens to a police officer when there is what they call a bad shoot. Like you shoot a guy and he's not armed. And he said, well, I thought I saw a flash or something. You know, that's what they always said. Yeah. Now, he didn't set out to kill him. I'm not saying that this even Rose set out that morning to go kill Timothy Thomas or anybody else. But you couldn't get a conviction. I don't give a damn no. what yeah. evidence there was. But now, and Jerry, as you said, you said it too, Megan, justice came from the lens of a camera. Mm -hmm. Not from a barrel yep. of a gun, but from the lens of a camera. We watched for nine and a half agonizing minutes with our own freaking eyes of a guy dying. Yep. And if there had been cameras in that alley and over the Rhine in 2001, April, then Stephen Roach might have been convicted. Or maybe not, Jerry. Maybe the time. Maybe we needed another 20 years to face yeah. the reality that a cop can do wrong. Even if they didn't get up in the morning and say, I think I'll go out and shoot some guy. Yeah. Because yeah. I yeah. don't think that's what they do. And I don't think that's what no. Joe no. did. No. And no, I I, tell you, I, I, when I, he was convicted, this is weird. I watched it in real time. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this, but I, I got teary eyed for him. 
Now, he, yeah. he deserves his conviction, but that man was leaving that courtroom and maybe for the rest of his life. Yeah. It's over. I was, I, yeah, I, I was noticing. Go, and I, I mean, yeah. I actually said kind of a prayer for him because I, it's not like I don't think he wasn't guilty. I think he was guilty. But my God, it's stunning when you see all this right in front of us. That guy walked out of there with a police officer with his hands cuffed behind him and he's off for some Gina, real bad days. Here's the only, here's, here's a major difference. A bad shoot, a bad shoot yep. is a split second. This yep, man true. had nine and a half minutes. You're right, Megan. Another decision. And that's, that's a great point. And that's so a great point. it really, I, I understand what yeah. you're saying, but nine and a half minutes to make the right decision. And with someone saying you can't breathe, I don't know. It's not, it's not equal to me in that, in that respect. Uh, I think you're right. And why some other cops said, hey, hey, because they were the cops there. Right. Why do you say, hey, loosen up, loosen up. You yeah. can't breathe. Yeah. You know, just, you would say that to your best friend cop. Right. You know, you guys are buddies, Dude. your partners. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, careful. Whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and, and he was no longer a threat. I mean, if ever he was a threat. Right. You know, he was no threat. What was he going to do? Yeah. You know, they had him down. He wasn't armed. I mean, it. it yeah. Yep. Oh, well, well, we'll find out if after today, because really today in my mind is kind of a turning point of, uh, well, it sets a precedent. And I'm sure there's been some other mm -hmm. cop that's been convicted. I mean, I'm, I don't study this stuff like a researcher. But uh, this would be the big one where, no, if you do something glaringly wrong, and as you properly point out, Megan, it didn't get any more glaring than this. You got nine and a half minutes. By the second, you can make a different decision. So I don't know if there'll be, ever be another one like this. But God, I, I hope, and one last point that I want to make, through this situation with George Floyd, do you guys agree that we saw really kind of a changing of America. During the pandemic, my wife and I had been uh, driving around because we couldn't do a lot. And we said, well, screw it, let's just get in a car and go to state parks and local parks and drive through neighborhoods and look at places. Before the show started, Megan, I was joking with you about this new development not far from where I live. We're not gonna buy there. It's very, very expensive. We thought, let's just kill some time and go over and drive around. It's see how, these you know, people. Well, see how the Jerry, no, see how the Jerry Springer's of the world live because the neighborhood yeah. like that. You know what I'm saying? Well, Gene, Gene, just send me an application, and uh, <laughs> you know we re, re, review the requests, the financial this, requests every Friday. The Springer so Foundation. Get them, get them in there, and we'll see what we can do. Listen, as I drove through <laughs> with my wife, neighborhoods all over the city. And if I rattle them off, Megan and Jerry would know what they are, but they're Cincinnati references. And Jerry lived in Cincinnati for many years, was mayor of the city and news anchorman. He knows all these neighborhoods. I got to tell you, there were so many Black Lives Matter signs in yeah. neighborhoods, many of which we didn't just drive through white neighborhoods, just driving around, looking at stuff, killing time. Uh, but we went through some, a lot of, you know, among them white neighborhoods, upper, upper middle class neighborhoods. Yeah. Black Lives Matter signs in homes, windows, staked yeah. out in the front yard. George Floyd, God rest his soul. One of the things he accomplished, he didn't set out to do this, 
but he drew in white America to, uh, to look through the window of what black people go through. I cannot become black. I'm a white guy. Right. I can never go around saying, oh, I, I feel you, bro. That's bullshit. I'm not yep. saying that. I don't feel, I don't feel any black people because I'm a white man for God's sake. But I'm telling you, there were Caucasian people who finally got it because of those glaring nine and a half minutes. And I hope America, in a, even in some small way, has changed forever. But Gene, Well, there's a parallel. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, this, keep in mind, too, we were, this was the beginning of the pandemic. We were forced to watch this. People couldn't get away from it. And it, you know, yeah. for better, for worse, we were trapped inside and this was the news. And yeah. I think it did, it, it may have touched people, it may have reached people that it wouldn't have in another time in history because we were watching TV. That's a good point. There is a parallel though in history, certainly yeah. in our lifetime, Gene, yeah. in uh, same kind of thing, 1962. America was still a very, very, very segregated society, still had black and white water fountains, hotels that blacks couldn't go to, et cetera. In 1962, we suddenly had television. Actually, it was about 59 when most Americans finally had television sets. But by 1962, every night on the news, and there was no other media other than your local newspaper and television, on television news every night, we suddenly saw pictures, film, it wasn't yet tape, of Bull Connors, a Southern sheriff, hosing down with, and also having dogs and batons and attacking little black children who were going to school. America saw that. Every night. About, desegregating schools, going to school. Desegregate, to desegregate yes. Thanks, thanks. That was critical, right? Uh, that these little black children were going into what had been white schools, and the Bull Connor and his the, the sheriff and his dogs and his batons and hoses beat down these little black children to keep them from going to a white school, and uh, America saw this. No matter where you live, no matter what your political views, every night at dinner to see this. And about four or five months later, President Kennedy goes on television and gives his famous uh, civil rights speech where we have to pass a civil rights act. Yeah. That uh, this is not America. And that was the birth in a sense of the rest of America joining the civil rights movement. That's when the whites came on over. You know, there always had been a few, but a mass of America not leaping up with joy of integration, but at least nodding their heads. Yeah, this isn't America. We can't have this. And it's the same kind of reaction we got now with this case. Mm -hmm. It's not that people suddenly turned all against police. It's that a lot of a white America is suddenly saying, yeah, you know what? This has gone on too long, you know. We're not like this. We're better than that. And I think that's what's happening. The power of the camera. Yeah. It did it in television back then. Mm -hmm. it's does it, it does it now in the 
phone videos we have and the cameras that the police officers carry on their uniforms. That's what's changing. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if we have to believe mm -hmm. our lying eyes before we really oh, get sure. convinced and change our behavior. Yeah. And it's kind of sad, but I, I agree with you. It's we have to see it as we did with those nine and a half minutes again and again. And you're right, Megan, we saw it when it was happening. We saw it you know, right after it happened. And then we saw it all through this last week, two weeks of the trial. We, we, we have trouble, and that's why I give a, a, a tip of the hat, sadly, to the death of Timothy Thomas, there was no camera. And I swear to God, if there had been a camera there or a drone flying over, somehow they would have captured that. It's just human nature, isn't it? That the, you feel the emotions are felt differently when you have seen it, you, you feel it. But when somebody yeah. describes what happened, just don't feel it the same. And that's too bad. Well, hopefully this is a turning point. Hopefully uh, America is uh, different. And we're going to find out because with all these shootings and gun violence, and of course, this is specific to uh, police officers at times doing the wrong thing. But, you know, every time there's a school shooting, you say, well, there'll be another one. And of course there is. And yeah. there'll be another police officer who will shoot somebody and we'll we'll find out as time passes well that yep. was a wonderful opening segment so light-hearted so full of the tom foolery of tales <laughs> tunes and Tom. that we right? promise you every uh, every <laughs> yeah. we promise you every time and so yeah. now we want to ask jerry hey jerry what did you do that was dumb this week <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's good what did you see that was well, dumb this week interestingly <laughs> and you won't believe this but this commentary I'm about to read, I wrote uh, a few days ago, and it, it is absolutely on point in a different way. Right. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the transformative presidents we've had in my lifetime. Those who, by external circumstances, as well as their own talents, altered the political landscape of our nation. We've had four in American history. FDR, as a response to the Great Depression, he came up with his New Deal. LBJ, as a response to the Civil Rights Movement, came up with the Great Society. Ronald Reagan, as a response to the perceived overreach of the federal government, came up with his championing of states' rights, and I'll get government off your backs. And now, Biden. In response to the twin evils of Trump and COVID, the restoration of the federal government to the rescue of the economic and physical health of the American people. The common characteristics of each of these presidencies, FDR, LBJ, Reagan, and now Biden, is that they each significantly change the role of government in our lives but also of perhaps equal significance, they changed the political inclination of American voters. FDR obviously creating a generation and more of a center left liberal electorate. LBJ winning some 44 states, seemingly cementing that reality by writing the emotional response of the Kennedy assassination, driving through the Civil Rights Act and all the attendant legislation 
all this and then brought about the next generation, the next great seismic shift in political affiliation, the Reagan era. And back toward conservatism and the Republicans, the voters shifted. We've been calling the country center-right ever since, even dampening the more liberal tendencies of Democrats than when they were elected, a la Clinton and Obama. Now, when Reagan beat Carter in 80 and Mondale in 84, decisively at that, the sudden shift in voting patterns was attributed to the voting of a specific constituency. We call them Reagan Democrats, voters who had traditionally been voting Democrats since FDR, but largely in response to issues of race, race and culture, specifically their response to the Civil Rights Act, busing, affirmative action, all these programs that they perceived, incorrectly I might add, they perceived they were primarily benefiting blacks and those war protesting marijuana smoking hippies. Well, at Reagan's not so subtle persuasion, they decided to switch and vote Republican because he would return America to the way it used to be. Sound familiar? Now, admittedly, Reagan's racism was far more subtle and seemingly polite than Trump's overt racist outbursts. Yet he was speaking to these disgruntled Democrats in recognizable dog whistles, announcing his candidacy for president in, of all places, Oxford, Mississippi, where the three civil rights workers were murdered trying to register African-Americans to vote. He coupled that symbolism with continually calling black women on welfare, welfare queens. And while governor of California, he built his reputation on taking on the college, the long haired hippie college protesters on campus. His message was clear to Democrats disillusioned and angered by this perceived coddling of blacks, the young and the anti-war soft on communism left. Come join me, Reagan said, the Republicans, where the whites will always reign. And the fact is, as ugly as that sounds, the tactic was hugely successful. And this generation of former Democrats, Reagan Democrats, was born, and they've never totally lost their grip until now. At least that's what I'm suggesting. I believe we are now experiencing, as we did in the 1980s, a new seismic shift, and this time in the other direction. Welcome to the world of Biden Republicans. I know there might be some wishful thinking here, but we do have some significant evidence, not just the fact that Democrats have now gotten the most votes in seven of the last eight presidential elections, including Biden's thumping of Trump in the last one, but in national polling over the past several months, not just among all voters, but even among Republican voters, a majority of Republicans comfortably support Biden on his $1.9 trillion stimulus package. They support him on health care for all, on immigration, on infrastructure, on unemployment checks, on abortion, indeed on virtually every major issue. A significant number of Republican voters have come over to Biden. Indeed, these are Biden Republicans. 
Only the Republican politicians don't get it. The voters, indeed Americans, are simply passing them by. How could not one Republican senator support Biden's stimulus package when an overwhelming majority of the American people, including a majority of Republican voters, want what Biden is offering? This is not a momentary defection of these voters. It's a recognition of reality. America is a multicultural society with government having a role. And to the Republican politicians who have been drinking the Trump Kool-Aid, believing the only card they can play is race and white culturalism, you're playing a losing hand. Time is not on your side. All you've got is the Confederate flag, and you know how that turned out. Good insight, Jerry. Well, what's the always name of wins. our, of our uh, company yeah. there? Liberals there always go. win. Sure. Yep. Thank nice. You. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, after this very lighthearted little chat that we've been having this evening, <laughs> we're going to turn it over to Eric Bolander. How are you, Eric? Hello, do hello, thanks sing, for having me. Do you Welcome mind singing the, the Eve of Destruction? Um, <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Try to work it out for next time. Cherry, <laughs> oh my God. As Shane said at the top of the show, Eric, you are a Kentucky boy. And you yeah, buddy. started yeah, out in Eastern Kentucky and now you're in Lexington, huh? Yeah, I was born on the, <laughs> the right side of the, the river. Yep, yes <laughs> you were. <laughs> And you just—how did you describe your type of music again? Americana. Uh, Americana folk. Uh, there's a country, country leaning in ben there as well. What's uh? Yeah. Where'd you get your your inspiration? When'd you start? How did this all come to be? Man, that's, <laughs> that's a long podcast. That's that long question. Uh, what I do. You know, I grew I grew up around you know folk and bluegrass and old country music, and sure. then uh, I was a teenager in the '90s. So I was big time into the you know alternative rock and grunge and things yeah. like that but, but then you know older i got and picking up a guitar starting to write songs in my mid-20s uh, i started looking back you know at some of the classic stuff that my dad would listen to my mom you know people like don williams um uh, keith whitley um, folks like that intertwined with you know allison change and yeah and, and soundgarden and nirvana you know, and, I've got some, <laughs> and then contemporary folks like john moreland and even uh, cincinnati's own arlo mckinley i've played shows with him for a long time he's great on and off and uh, he's he's been an influence on me too as well really so um a little bit of everything um i picked up a guitar my freshman year of college it's my best friend played and I didn't actually start singing and writing until I was, like I said, in my mid-20s. That's really cool. So what um, what do you have? What have you brought to share with us this evening? And tell us a little bit about it, please. So we had opportunity to go up to Mansfield, Ohio, at the uh, Ohio State Reformatory, which is made famous in the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And filmed a video for our song called Ghost. That's what's on pocket for the show. Eric Bolander Ghost Heavy Low On 
my mind Letting go One more time I can't see it On my back Can't believe it is unpacked. And now this girl on my wall won't let go of me running down. Listeners who are not joining us live on Facebook, oh, wow. you need to go check out that video because it is haunting. That's really, <laughs> really a cool video. Thank um, you very much. Eric, who was playing with you in that? Who, who were your buddies there? So Ben Caldwell's on the drums and backing vocals and Seth Murphy's on cello. Uh, they're both, uh, they're, they're my core bandmates. Okay. Uh, I have a, I have a fourth guy, John Ferguson, who does a lot of things on the in the studio and he'll play with us live sometimes as well very cool very very cool so tell us how we can hear more work oh, yeah sorry. let me jump in before you draw that out of him as well go gene uh, go you <laughs> i teach a couple classes and it's been way late because of the pandemic at kentucky state reformatory and i've been on this mission in my mind i teach a poetry writing class and a critical thinking class and i've been on this uh vision mission to get some singer songwriter to go in behind those walls with me and speak to my writing class particularly about how you write songs do a session and then in sure. in the chapel yeah. which would hold i don't know 100 guys to do a concert would you have an interest in since you've been to mansfield would you have an interest in doing that Kentucky guy. All right. So I'm in. Yeah, totally. Me and the guys are right, down so for something. Range, like Kentucky, so. just to give you an idea. That's Louisville. That's not far from where you're living. I'll swing back to you because yeah, I think that would be great. I was real excited when Megan was introducing that. Yeah. Heard you did that at yeah. Mansfield. Please do. Um, I've I've actually played um, you know, me and Seth, uh, my uh, the yeah. cello player in my band have played a show at the uh 
Oh, I feel bad because it used to be called Eastern Hospital yeah. here in Lexington. Um, and uh, it's a similar idea, but it was it was for, you know, just sort of okay. entertainment. Well, we'll do there. it. I can't remember the name of the place now, but. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Go cool. for me. All right, Eric, tell us tell us where we can find more of you. What's your website, Facebook? Uh, the website's ericbolender.com. Um, it's pretty easy. All the links are there, socials. I'm on Facebook, Eric Bolender Music, uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, and uh, streaming. So anywhere you stream music, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes. YouTube, How can people see that uh, ghost video? You mentioned that, Megan. Where, uh, on, just YouTube, on YouTube. You just type you in go. Eric Bolander. And I have a direct link on my website. It's actually you on the homepage. It's one of the videos. You can't on see ghosts. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm, no, I, I, I was trying. No. I, anyway, it's been a pleasure. I said, where is he? Where is he? I could hear you. It's like, where's the ghost? Where's the ghost? You know, it's funny. Oh, they, wow. they gave us a little VIP ghost tour while we were up yeah. there. Oh, really? Apparently, they get, Apparently they give ghost tours all the time. And it's funny, my wife my wife accuses me of not liking to have fun because I don't believe in ghosts. She just said I don't, I don't believe in fun. And I was like, fair enough. <laughs> but I wrote a song about it. And it's called Ghost. And it's called Ghost. Oh, it was a beautiful song with a very cool Thank video. You. And we'd love to have you on was tonight. Done by, uh, so the video was done by Render 13 Films out of uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Very cool. Very, very cool. Well, we look forward to talking to you again, sir. Hopefully we can get you back. And oh. um, I guess I guess Jerry's going to sing for us on the way out. Down by no, the along with Casey Campbell. <laughs> right. yeah. oh, along with Sorry, one Mr. Guys. Casey Campbell. I'm going to lay down my heavy Listening. Check out our website, jerryspringer.com. 